And so if we can ever take our compassion, which is important, I mean, compassion just means to suffer with, and if we connect it with our business intelligence, the ROI will be far greater on both lives. Welcome to the Up In Your Business podcast, building you to do business better. This show is about intention, transparency, and insights from business professionals sharing their personal business. Discover what they've learned the hard way so you don't have to. Empowering a new breed of self-aware leadership. Here's your host, Angus Nelson. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 053 of the Up In Your Business podcast, building you to do business better. I'm your host, Angus Nelson, and it is really great to have you here. If you are new to the show, this is your weekly dose of business savvy, emotional intelligence, and oftentimes a bit of inspiration. I help you master your mindset, dominate your fears, unleash your amazing, and live your most effective self. So today, I have a question for you. Do you ever feel like news media and social media are all together inundated with what's wrong in the world? It's like the only news uh, that they can spout off is junky, bad, negative news. And today, I could just share with you a little about what one organization is doing to do things that are good. And in fact, the gentleman I'm interviewing is a friend, and we met over five years ago when he was only starting out. Uh, He had a vision, and he wanted to do something positive in the world. And the two of us had grabbed lunch at an In-N-Out Burger. We were in Las Vegas, and uh, we were at an event that both of us were speaking at. And uh, one of our mutual friends um, had put on this Idea Camp uh, event. So shout out to you, uh, Charles Lee, and the Idea Camp community. So my friend and I, we shared our hearts and our frustrations, but most of all, we shared our dreams. And neither one of us were in the place that we are today. So it's kind of cool that we've stayed in touch and watched each other's lives continue to be transformed. And his little vision has now grown into a $3 million nonprofit organization that brings impact to thousands of children's lives in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, in Zimbabwe and Congo and Peru, Ethiopia, South Africa, and many more. And today we're talking with the founder of Help One Now. He's dedicated his life to seeking justice by empowering high-capacity local leaders to care for orphans, uh, vulnerable children, and seeing their communities transformed. You get to hear about his passion in organizing tribes of everyday people, just like you and me. He's getting them to partner with global movements that do good. And he just released a book called Doing Good is Simple. And when you hear me read portions of this book, um, well, I can't help but fall into like a tear-filled, blubbling, uh, blubbling, blub, blubbing <laughs> emotion. Uh, it's it hits me in some real tender parts because um, it's part of my background. You'll hear that in the show, and this book really hit me in the feels. So sorry about getting a little emotional, um, but I love it. Um, if you care about people 
and you want to make a difference um, with very small actions, you're going to love this interview with Chris Marlowe. So let's jump into that interview right now. You're listening to the Up In Your Business podcast. I'm your host, Angus Nelson. I am here with Chris Marlowe. Chris, how in the world are you? Angus, what's up, man? So good to be here hanging with you today. What is the most fun thing you've done with your family in the last 48 hours? 48 hours. Okay, so um, yeah. So, so well, we've had a lot of fun actually this all, all summer, but my youngest daughter, Mackenzie, for, turned 14, um, and she went to school on her first day of high school on Monday, and she missed the bus. So we kind of had a crazy Monday. Um, and she has to take the city bus this year. So she's used to being dropped off and walks up to class. This year, she's going to a, a different school 30 minutes away. Um, so last night, she gets home. She's like, Dad, I know what I want to do with my life. I want to open up a diner. And so tonight, we want, I want to go to dinner at this diner 25 minutes from us. So we live in downtown Raleigh. We don't ever get in the car hardly. Nice. And so we're literally driving 25 minutes last night to this awkward diner that serves really average food. But my daughter was completely into it and loved it. So that's, that's the most interesting thing we've done. That's fantastic. So I want to take you into a different realm, uh, not a diner, but I want to just kick us off right off the get-go about a gas station in Zimbabwe. Yeah, yeah. This is what started it all, and uh, I did the intro here where I introduced your book, Doing Good is Simple, but it started off by kind of a, a, a shot to the chest. Yes, it did. Yes, I, I I relive this moment Um Almost every day. And it's just, you know, it's funny because as life, we we want to live meaningful, significant lives. Like we're like our generation is so desperate to like live with meaning. Um, and so the problem with meaning or even significance on one hand, you have to go through interruption. You have to be willing to go through these moments where your entire, where everything kind of changes. And for me, that was at this gas station in Zimbabwe. A friend of mine had moved um, to Cape Town and began to do development work. Part of that development work was entrepreneur training, um, really helping create jobs all throughout the Southern Africa. And he wanted me to visit on this leader named John, um, who was doing brilliant work. And so we did. And so I remember flying to Cape Town and spending five days in Cape Town um, with some really brilliant um, business leaders in, in that area. And then we went to visit Zimbabwe in 2007. Zimbabwe was on the verge of a civil war. Like literally the country, like the, the tension was so thick. As we're crossing the border, um, the, the, the South African police and the Zimbabwe police both say, you're, 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 you should not do this. You should go back. So I remember this moment of like, man, kind of facing fear of like, you know, I want to care for people who are desperate, but also like, do is this a, is this a good idea or not? So as we enter as we enter the other side, we're in Zimbabwe, where it's literally a twenty hour travel day, and John, um, our, our Zimbabwe leader, still says, "Hey, do you mind if we stop at this gas station? I need to check on some kids." And then I grew up in Northern California, just outside of Oakland, and we don't stop at gas stations at four a.m. in the morning. Right, it's like right. rule number one: like if you want to survive here, do not do this. Um, so um, I'm like, John, are you sure this is a good idea? He's like, Yeah, man, we got we got to do this. Like he didn't even think twice about it. So um, I remember driving up into this abandoned gas station downtown Harare. Three million people live in the city, and yet it's literally like quiet. Like nobody is around. As we drove up, the light shone on the gas station, you know, floor, and I, I just what I saw is still, you know, still frustrates me. It's dozens and dozens of kids. Um, average age is four, five, six, seven, eight. I mean, I, my daughters at the time were five and seven. Mm. Um, so, like, these are my kids' age. 
um, we get out of the van and we're surrounded by all these kids. Um, and I realized that this um, gas station was a makeshift orphanage. They would all come at night and spend and, you know, live together, do life together. During the day, they would all go out in the city and literally beg to, to survive. Um, and so these aren't even street kids. These are kids that we would call on the edge of life now, or like they literally were probably weeks away from death because they couldn't find food in the country. Um, so one kid grabbed me by the arm, um, pulled me low, made eye contact, and he said these words. He said, sir, thank you for visiting my country. I'm so sorry it's in the shape that it's in. And I couldn't process that. Like, like kids apologizing about the object poverty that he's living in, even though he had nothing to do with it. Um, and he says, I don't want to beg you for food, but is there anything I can do to work for you? So we, he's, he's a community leader of these other kids, so we could get something to eat. Um, man, I was just blown away, overwhelmed. And, you know, the dirty little secret is we had a van full of food going to these 30 other orphans that John was taking care of long term. Um, so just literally I'm next to this, you know, van full of food and water and gas, um, which was impossible to get. Um, but I looked at this young kid in the eye and I told him, no, I have, I have nothing for you. Um, and really, that's what I was told to do, right? Like, you know, we can't help everyone. It's kind of a confusing thing. But um, I remember the devastation that he had in his eyes. And this place, very few outsiders would visit. So this was like, as a business person, you know, we get this. We have these opportunities. We have these moments that, hey, if we can capture this moment, you know, we can make an impact or we can grow our business or we can seize the opportunity. And so for this kid, this moment was like, hey, if these are some outsiders who have access to what I don't have access. Maybe I can just get a hot meal. And so I was devastated, and it definitely completely changed my life. When people think about the amount of poverty that's in the world, I watched uh, a little YouTube video here just this last week where a gentleman lays out these gumballs mm. and measures the amount of poverty of people who live on less than in comparison to what we think it is in our mind, and it was just mind-boggling. So people yeah. run up against you know these hurdles in their minds, and in your book you talk about three hurdles that we think about. The issue that it's there's too many people, the issue that the problems are too big, yeah. and that the solutions are too complicated. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, and you know, I was living that out when I was in Zimbabwe. Like I'm seeing all of this massive, massive need. And so after I met the boy, um, we ended up going to John's house. And the next day, we spent a full day with these 30 orphans that John had, was taking care of, um, John and his community. It's a community collaboration project, if you will. So what I learned from like the, the, the gas station experience to the next day, there are these 30 amazing orphans um, who, who, you know, I can't solve all of extreme poverty. I can't fix all the world's problems. If I think about 150 million orphans, which is roughly what um, the data is, is 150 million single orphans, which means they may have a mom, but not a dad. Um, and then there's probably about 20 million double orphans, depending on what statistic you believe in. If I think macro I'm going to get overwhelmed as a human. Like, what can what can I do to help? I mean, we're busy people. We have jobs. We have family. We have our dreams. Um, the the Western world requires us to be fast paced people, whether we want to admit that or not. Mm -hmm. And so, we're often trying to think, what can I do to to help 150 million orphans around the world? That's too much. And so, one of the things we realize is like. How do we simplify this process, right? Because most folks do, they really do want to give back and they want to help. And, and, and actually some of the most um, 
successful people I've met, they've had this moment in their own life where they, they found all the success in business they can ever imagine and they still felt lost and hopeless. And it was when they began to connect the generosity fact. Like, okay, success is important, but success that makes a difference in the world is even better. And so um, when we think big picture, we get overwhelmed. But to me, I said, what about these 30 orphans? Maybe my friends and my family and my city. I was living in Austin, Texas at the time. Maybe maybe I can rally a group of people and say, hey, you know what? We can fill the gap and step in and really care for these 30 orphans. So just like, you know, when project management, when you business planning, when you look at all the stuff you have to do, it can totally overwhelm you. But if you break it down into chunks, it can inspire you and encourage you to kind of take the next step. So um, what I'm trying to wrestle with in the book is, how do we tackle big issues without taking the whole issue on our shoulders? Because we can't solve it all. But the, 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 the most negative thing we can do is to ignore it, right? Mm-hmm. So let's just, take, let's just do one thing or two. Let's partner with one organization. Let's tackle one issue and let's go deep and let's see if we can make a significant impact even in the few because in the few matters. So um, that's, that's kind of what we're trying to process there. Yeah, and – you know, my background, for those of you who are listening, uh, the reason why I wanted to bring Chris on the show today was more so than just being friends and we have history together. Uh, we we're involved in an organization. Um, we've both gone far differently than what we had anticipated <laughs> five, six years ago when we first met. Yeah. And my background was that I had been involved in a short-term missions organization. I've always had amazing compassion and empathy for trying to impact the world. And then I worked in nonprofit. You know my story that I've run a couple of different organizations. And for me, I finally got to the point where I was sick of begging people for money. And so I left nonprofit and I made a commitment to my heart and to God to say, I want to go and build influence so that I can help bring people to the causes that I believe in. So today with Chris, I'm bringing you to one. It's awesome, man. Super, super excited to be here. Really, really, it's been fun to see kind of your journey and, you know, through all the ups and downs and life truly is a journey and we just, we, we don't know what's around the corner, but, um, the, the business community Angus is so vital when we talk about extreme poverty, because oftentimes we, you know, we kind of say, hopefully those, some church folks will take care of that or some, you know, good people with big hearts. I mean, I remember I was in a church one time in, in Austin and um, a gentleman walked up to me, and I didn't know at the time that he ran a multi-billion-dollar oil company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he asked me a question. He says, "Hey, listen, how can I help Haiti? The earthquake had just happened, and he was, and we were just starting a nonprofit, help one now. We were, you know, so green still. Um, and I go, well, why don't you come and trip with me? Maybe we'll go, you know, build some houses or something." And he goes, "Dude, I don't want to build a house." And I'm like, "Okay, this is going to get awkward really quick." Because like, I, I know how to create jobs. Yeah. I know how to do. I know how to do business on a global scale. Like, is there anyone I can go help train, or can I invest in entrepreneurs? Or and so, what this guy was teaching me in this very startup phase of the nonprofit was um, he knew how to get stuff done that I had no clue how to do because he ran a global corporation. Um, and so, it was a moment where I realized, like, you know what, the healthcare sector, the education sector, the business sector. They are, they have vital roles in really helping fight extreme poverty on on a global scale, but also on a strategic, um, you know, intentional scale. So the more the more we get the business community involved and committed and see and, and intentional, which is really usually the the thing that's missing because we're so busy in our own worlds, kind of just trying to keep up. 
Um, but man, the bigger impact will make it the more intentional we get as a business community. Yeah. And one of the trips that uh, my wife and I took uh, in 2009 was to Haiti. And we went to a small town called Kara, which was about a four-hour journey out of Port-au-Prince into the middle of nowhere where people were eating dirt cakes yep. to try and get nutrients into their bodies. Yep. And the way that the ministry of this organization was being done and how they were serving people was so backwards. They had a big wall around the compound with a water well inside. And rather than letting anybody come in, they only allowed the people who were members of the church. And even those that were a member of the church had to have a proper head covering and proper shoes and proper clothing to attend their services. And I remember being so angry at what was being represented and what message was being shared non-verbally to those around. And I look at what other organizations have done where we just keep throwing money at problems. Yep. And especially in Haiti, there's so much corruption and so many layers and so many levels of everything from adoption where you're paying thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars just to want to be a good parent to someone who <coughs> needs love, just to someone who needs, you know, some kind of attention yep. and, and care. And so all those complexities get me really angry. But I watch what you guys do, and you have a different perspective. Can you share how you empower leaders that are local, on the ground, to help transform themselves from within? Yeah, it's absolutely like the linchpin, if you will, to take Seth's word. Um, You know, I did it when I came back from the Zimbabwe experience. I spent a year doing research. Um, And this was kind of the year where you and I actually met with the Idea Camp folks. And so part of that research was I would visit communities and it was always an outsider leading. And I thought to myself, how are you going to innovate? How are you going to create progress if it's always someone from the outside leading and controlling the cash and sharing the vision? And I'm like, this is just not, this is not going to work. And so uh, my experience with John in Zimbabwe, I realized that this guy is a really brilliant strategic thinker. He, he understands collaboration. He understands how to get human capital unleashed to solve problems. There's definitely needs to be a cash flow to help kickstart. But if we're just throwing cash in, it's, you know, we can't, and and even for me, I can't ask people just to donate and write checks all the time. We have to give people other ways, on-ramps and off-ramps, to get involved in, 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 you know, in giving back. And so um, we just said, hey, what what if we found the most brilliant leaders around the world? And we, internally, we call them the 2%, right? They're the top 1% or 2% that we can find. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. just, they're getting stuff done without us. They're not waiting for us. They're not begging for money. Um, they have a leadership pipeline. It's amazing. They're building capacity. Um, but usually what they lack is um, some formal you know, connections and obviously cash to kickstart kind of their dreams. And so what we begin to do is, you know, okay, there's, there's a health care issue in Haiti. Cholera is exploding. Um, let's bring down a bunch of health care professionals and let them partner with local Haitian health care professionals and let them solve problems together. But what if, what if the Haitians were the leaders of that conversation and not the outsiders? Mm-hmm. And so um, we kind of have a three-pronged strategy. We want, we, want to, you know, we want to invest in high-capacity local leaders to care for kids who are vulnerable in order to transform their community. With the community transformation, 
pieces, education, job creation, healthcare, and spiritual development. And um, we, we don't do the spiritual development part. That's all of our, you know, the local churches in the country we serve or whatever. But, you know, education, job creation, healthcare. So we begin to ask professionals here in those sectors to say, hey, will you invest not only cash, but we invest some of your time to go down. And so like now we have teachers leaving the States and going to all over the world. And their one week experience is not like painting the orphanage or kicking a soccer ball. It's investing in other teachers in Haiti or in, in places in Africa. So when they, when they leave, they're actually leaving a gift behind. And so it's really fun to see people who are passionate about key issues, be able to use that passion to solve problems around the world. And they see that as a way to give back. And so local leadership for us means everything. And you've taken storytellers who have built campaigns that then went on to build school. Yep. You've taken a dentist who um, then came back with such a fire and passion that now he trains other dentists in yep. country. Um, yes. You've helped capitalize people that they just don't go in and have what you called, I think it was um, some kind of missional consumerism. <laughs> yeah. Where we just go in and take a bunch of pictures to say, look how yeah. good of a human being I am because I went to this poor country and got my picture taken yeah. with these poor people. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty devastating to think about it. Like, we, we need a connection and we need experiences. And, you know, in the West right now, we're kind of driven off experiences and community. Um, but the problem is oftentimes when we think about, you know, like global development work or maybe traditional short-term mission work or um, even service projects, we're, we're entering into these communities and we're doing the most basic level of work. And while we're doing that basic level of work, we're actually taking jobs away. And so when the earthquake in Haiti had taken place and um, I was talking to our leader, John Leakes, this guy runs a massive business and like 12 different community development projects all throughout Haiti. I mean, he's a high level, high capacity. He teaches me far more than I teach him. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, more like assessing like, hey, hey, John Leakes, what, what is the most important thing in your community that we can do? And he goes, well, all my friends are homeless. They're living in tents. It's 100 degrees outside. It's devastating. And we need to start building homes. I'm like, okay, well, we can bring a bunch of people to build homes. Or we can raise money to build homes and hire all Haitians to build homes. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we did, and it's just real simple, right? Like entrepreneurs get this, right? Like this isn't rocket science. This isn't some innovative thing. All we did was ask the next question. Well, if we need to build homes and if these Haitians don't have jobs – and they know how to build Haitian homes better than we know how to build Haitian homes because it's their culture, it's their country. Why don't we hire them? So we, we literally just started a construction crew, and every home we built had you know had connected about 15 Haitian jobs. Mm. Um, so we're creating jobs as we build homes. And then overall, like our, our donors, if you will, when they saw that, they were far more excited to be a part of it than if they would have went down and built the home themselves because it's just a holistic way to do good and probably do it a little wiser than if – we would have done the homes ourselves. Yeah, and I love the story that you tell about, and I've thought this through myself. I mean, this is mind-boggling. Like the amount of money that we spend on short-term missions where we yeah. come in and we paint the same building that somebody else has <laughs> painted before, yeah. and then we take our pictures and we go home. Like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, are spent every year yeah. just for someone to have... Billions. Billions. To billions, yeah. just go billions. have some little feel good, you know, experience, then they come home and they never 
maintain a relationship with those people that they're with. They never keep up any kind of funding, whether it be financial or emotional or, you know, some kind of a product or, or service. Like they just come home and they're done. Yep. And that stuff infuriates me. Well, and here's the challenge. Here's, here's, so this is something that we've been as, you know, kind of a help one now tribe, if you will. Some of the most brilliant people, when and you know I think because they grew up in like the, you know I didn't grow up in the church world so I I never understood this but some people grew up with go serve people and service always meant these really simple projects of painting you know playing with kids um, and yet some of the most brilliant people are doing something they're not very good at like I, I can't build anything I'm like, I got to figure out righty you know lefty stuff when I have a screwdriver my daughter right, has right. to call grandpa when like the door breaks like okay I'm not even going to ask dad because he doesn't know what he's doing <laughs> um, so I'm going to go to Haiti and build a home like heck no I'm terrible I'll probably kill someone you know I'm terrible at it so um, the, we just some of those brilliant people don't ask ask the next question and in the business what are we taught to do we're taught to pro- to solve problems by asking mm-hmm. key questions and coming up with strategies that will help do what see a product come alive help sell the product help make sure we sell it within a certain cost mm-hmm. level and so when we do the service projects globally we're not thinking like business people we're thinking like compassionate people and so if we can ever take our compassion which is important i mean compassion just means to suffer with and if we connect it with our business intelligence the ROI will be far greater on both lives. On, on you know whether whether you're helping locally, you know, a homeless program or you know, refugee program, or whether you're doing a global thing in orphan care or trafficking. Um, when we begin to think think through this with a business lens and a compassion lens, then we'll we'll make far greater progress. So I want to read a portion out of your book here. You uh, segued this quite nicely. Are you saying I'm a great writer? Uh, you okay, just set up your great writing. How's that? <laughs> uh, it is a good. It's a very well written book, by the way. You said, "I'm not interested in winning culture wars. I don't want to destroy people in the process of sticking up for truth. I refuse to be known as a person who hates another person or is better than another person for whatever reason. When you are full of compassion and willing to love, no matter the cost, truth will become evident. And when you stand for truth with a sense of humility." And you have lived a life. <laughs> Woo! Hold on. Yeah, and I like this. And you've lived a life worth imitating. Even those who disagree with you will respect you. Yeah. That's compassion. Yeah, man. I think um, I'm just, I'm so tired of the hate in our world. I'm just, I'm just over it, right? Like, there's so many real issues that we face as a global community of people. Um, we're all interconnected. We're no longer, you know, Americans are no longer safe over here and on this side of the world. Like it's, we're all connected now. And so um, how do we differentiate between some of our, our personal beliefs for the religious or political? And these things matter, right? People need to have a belief system or that they believe. And that's what makes, in you know, America, that's what makes us great. We can have options and choices and opinions. But somehow everything's become a war, you're either with us or you're against us. And it's like, wait a minute, that was never the goal of everything. Like the goal was for us to like wrestle together with how to make the everyone, everyone better. Mm-hmm. And so um, I remember um, that day I was with John and those 30 orphans in Zimbabwe. We had dropped off the food we had in the van. And so I asked John, I go, hey, John, how long will this food last, these 30 kids? And I didn't, I had no context. Like it was just bags of rice and beans and and he looked and he kind of did, 
you know, a little head shake and like numbers in his head. And he says, well, probably three weeks. And I'm like, what? Three weeks? What are you going to do in three weeks? He's like, well, I don't know. And that's, and we'll have to, we'll worry about that in three weeks. You know, he's got enough things to worry about between now and then. And he goes, in our community, we learn how to help one another no matter what. And so sometimes we help, you know, we help the Muslims down the street who are helping kids. We help, you know, we help the, the, the government orphanage down the street who's, you know, more formally ran. Um, and so about 10 minutes later, this, this diesel pulls into the kids' home. And it, it was the local Muslim group. Mm-hmm. And they had leftover supplies. And they gave all of those leftover supplies to our kids who had three weeks worth of food. But when they left, they had three months worth of food. So it was this moment in my, like, just, I'm having this, you know, four hours later, I had the gas station experience. Then I meet these 30 kids. Then, and then I saw, like, okay, we need to collaborate as a community on the most basic needs of humanity. We can disagree on a lot of things, but compassion means to suffer with. And part of that is, like, how do I help you? And how do you help me? And how do we neighbor one another well? Um, and I think just the world will be better. And, and we have to unlock that. And we have to be committed to unlocking that. So um, as we do global work, we want to be sensitive to all the various needs, knowing at the same time we don't always have to agree with one another to learn how to serve each other well. Mm. I want to leave the book for a few moments. We'll come back to it. And I want to talk about you. Okay. And Chris, you grew up feeling the feelings of being an orphan. Can yeah. you share what your childhood was like? Yeah, it's interesting. Like this has been a unique experience as a, from a writer, right? Because like you, you know, I, you know, you, you, Angus, you understand this. Like you speak all over. So as a speaker, I get to control what I what, what I share. As a writer, you know, I'm like okay, I got to write a book that matters and that's transparent. And so I, I wrote this whole chapter, if you will, about my own life. And so I haven't had to talk about these things for like 15, 20 years. So I'm like, oh yeah, I actually was an orphan. That's so. It takes me back to a place that I literally have forgotten about kind of, you know, as a, as a, as an older 40 something gentleman these days, um, with gray beards. And so, um, but all that to be said, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a broken home. Um, grew up in a city called Stockton, California. Um, a guy named Nate Diaz, who's an MMF fighter. I was just reading an article on, on that guy. And I'm like, yeah, that's the kind of people who come from my city, you know, like they're just crazy. Um, so part, you know, grew up relatively, um, lower, upper lower middle class if you will or like upper poor i mean i, I you know I, we were in it we weren't extremely poor um but you know i grew up in a trailer park and so my mom had, was married off and on for four times mostly to drunks and alcoholics and um that's she she was the best lady in the world but she found men in the worst places in the world and so um, when I was when I was eight, my father and re-entered my life, and I knew he made a mistake because he brought me a, a baseball bat and glove, and I'm a terrible baseball player. So I'm like, um, dude, I don't do baseball. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. that's not my thing. So, but yeah, I grew up, you know. But here's what's crazy, you know. The the reason this is why I wrote the book because it was a it was a it was a youth pastor of a small church, it was a plumber and a teacher, and these three people entered my life. And just literally change everything. They didn't try and change the whole world. They couldn't solve every problem in our community. Um, but these three people literally took a broken kid um, from homelessness um, and like for three years just poured into my life and then sent me out into the real world. And so everything that I've been able to do, you know, the, all the mistakes I've made, all the successes we've had, 
are literally built on the foundation of these three community leaders who are everyday average normal people who said, I'm going to invest in um, this young kid. And, um, and I think that's what we're trying to figure out. Like we can't solve all the world's problems, but can we invest in one person? Can we, mm. can we volunteer for boys and girls club or a big brother, big sister, or, you know, can we commit to one global community and say, Hey, I'm going to go back to, to this place and continue to train entrepreneurs or, you know, whatever I'm passionate about, pour into them. Um, and that's what happened to me, man. And it changed my life. And I'm grateful for those three folks. So you get older, you've come from a difficult background and you start a nonprofit and after that it becomes peaches and cream and yeah. rainbows and butterflies, right? Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, so well first of all I'm a big idiot because um I started to help one now. Like my first part time month was November two thousand eight. Um, and then obviously we were trying to launch it in 2009 like, you know, the economy is going crazy. I mean, I'm just watching them the global meltdown. Uh, but some things are worth doing and facing our fears. Like we have to face our fears. I meet so many people who are wasting their moments and we don't have very many moments in life doing the safe thing. Um, and some people are designed for that way. They, they thrive in safety. So it's not like, it's not like one person's better than the other. I think, I feel like we think that, but for me, I've just always been a natural entrepreneur, risk taker. Like I need to be on the edge for motivation. If I get in a safe place, I get, I get awkward. I don't know how to deal with it. Right. So right. Right. I'm, I got to keep myself on the edge, which, you know, my wife and my daughters and, um, the help on our team gets a little stressed out about that. But, um, yeah, and that, so it was weird because I did a lot. I did some pastoral type stuff, but then I did a lot of business stuff. Ran a couple of real estate firms, entrepreneur by nature, and so the nonprofit space kind of combined these two worlds for me. Um, and then when we begin to research the nonprofit world, um, being the Rice House, most of them just weren't they they were they weren't ran like a business should be ran. I mean. How do we hire the best staff? How do we implement the best systems? How do we make the largest impact with the least amount of money? So I was that was thriving in that environment because in the in the church world I was doing a lot of you know like I go on a hospital visit I wanted to cry like oh my god I'm not designed to go on a hospital visit I'm not that not wired that way but sit down and have a strategic meeting about how to create the most efficient process is what I love to do and so yeah non it's, it's um I thought as we grew it would get easier. But what I've realized is it's harder now. Mm. It's literally more difficult now that we're, you know, a $3 million a year org, which is still very small. But, um, yeah, it just gets harder but also more fun. And more, it's more energetic now than ever. It's great. What's the hardest thing for you right now? I think taking advantage of opportunities. You know, like, okay, we have more opportunities. Um, but yet if we don't have the discipline to say no and yes and figure those two things out and, you know, internally, like – we should probably say no to 80% of opportunities and the 20% we say yes to should be great and they need to be implemented really well. They need to have a great impact. But if we say yes to all of them, we'll just be, we'll do a bunch of things average. And so, um, yeah, I think, and then, you know, how do you hire the best staff and take care of them and not burn them out yet also in the nonprofit space, the reality is we give away 80%. So how do you run a business where your, you know, your, your profit it's reinvested in the human capital and the projects all over the world, not reinvested back into your business. And so the challenges of a nonprofit leader are very different. But, you know, all that requires really, Angus, is innovation. 
So a few other orgs have begun to like talk about a model like, well, what if we built a private foundation and they kind of help fund, um, help one now so we don't have to be under the, 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 the strain of always having no cash, which means you can't have great staff, which means you can't have great systems. So we have a whole private foundation that kind of funds the day-to-day so we can do the best work we can do possible. It sounds like the um, uh, charity water model is similar to that, I believe. Yeah, well, I'll bring you back to 2011, uh, Ideation, Long Beach. And I actually um, was at dinner with Scott Harrison and Jeff Schinnerbarger and Charles Lee. Um, and that was kind of, yeah, it was like, wait a minute, we got to innovate in the space. How do we do it? Scott Harrison from Charity Water had been thinking through that. and was kind of the first to the game, if you will. And, um, and so my job is like the CEO of Help One Now is to make sure we have, you know, 75 to 100 investors. And what's great for us is like these folks invest anywhere from 2,500 a year, usually to 25,000. Um, but they want to see the nonprofit grow. We also have about five angel investors. So they're giving six figures and up. Um, and so, and so the connection to that is we're about to go on a tour. It's going to cost us about a half a million dollars, but we can raise about 2 million a year. And we would never be able to say yes to that tour um, if it wasn't for these investors. And so part of the innovation, if you will, in the nonprofit space is like it doesn't – why do we think it always has to be done the way it was always done? Like there's got to be new ways to create progress um, and to innovate, if you will. And so that's what we're trying to do. But that being said, the reality is you know, we're always chasing – and, and we committed to doing this. Like as a leader, when people hang out with me, I hardly ever ask for money. I didn't want to be the leader who's always asking for money. So we're really intentional. But when it's all said and done, my job is to raise money and to tell stories. Mm-hmm. People that are listening right now, what's the biggest thing they can do to help you? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing they can do to help me is to commit to themselves and make the world a better place. I think that's like, you know, we have to be super intentional when it comes to this. Once you do that, I think the you know depending on where you're at, I mean, doing good is simple, right? We have very simple ways to get involved, like people throwing garage sale parties. It's it sounds kind of you know, it's it's a unique thing, but we raised almost a million dollars from people just throwing garage sale parties. To we have people who are saying, hey, I want to invest and help one out, and I want to be a foundation member. Um, some folks sponsor a child. A lot of folks say, hey, I want I want to you know come on a trip and experience this and find a way to get involved long term. When folks come on a trip, we ask that they get involved three to five years in the community. And that way we actually can see progress together. Um, and so, you know, there, there are small ways to get involved. There are big ways to get involved. The key to it is they all matter. Like the, the, people have to do all of it to make Help One Now function properly. And so, um, you know, just go on the website, helponenow.org, um, and reach out. My, my email address is there. And we'd love to chat with folks who may want to go deeper. That's awesome. So I want to talk about a couple things as we uh... – kind of bring it in for a landing here. One is small is the new big. Yes. Just like you were saying, you talk about some different movements. You want to kind of unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think we're seeing, I mean, and I mean this, like sometimes in the justice world, people like me who are in it so deeply, and then we've experienced a lot. I mean, I had a kid die in my arms four years ago. I mean, we experienced stuff that most folks don't experience, on, a, on an everyday level as a vocation. But oftentimes there's this real lack of grace in that conversation. Like I want people to be at my level and like, it's just not fair. You know, you're an accountant or you're a teacher or you're an entrepreneur and you, you got your own responsibilities. Um, 
And so, and, and so what we were seeing when people would get involved and they would go all in, but they would try and do so much in such a small amount of time that they would burn out and then they would disappear because they felt guilty. So what we're saying is small is a new big, like find, jump in on a small level and it's okay to take time. You don't have to solve the whole world's problem. You don't have to give 50% of your budget. You don't, you know, you can take time entering into the space and figuring out where your best fit is. So, um, and, and we realized a few years in that no one talks about how to partner well. What does it mean to be a good partner? Um, what does it mean for helping now to be a good partner to our donors and to our tribe? And what does it mean for our tribe to be good partners to us? Because if we figure this out, we can do great work together, but we need one another to make it work. So we do. We encourage people to, to start small, stay focused, be a part of it for a long time because the beauty is this. You know, we in Haiti, we get this all the time. Like people who have been going to the same community for four or five or six years, they can't fathom the progress that they see every time they come back. And there's nothing more beautiful but for them to realize, like, hey, I helped this. I'm, you know, my generosity or my human capital, the way I advocated for the org has helped create this. So it's a beautiful moment. And, and when we think big, we tend to burn out. We think small. We think, okay, I can, I can do this. I can work out 20 minutes a day. Can, can you say that last part again? Because you, you, I think you covered your mic. So if, think, we think, if we think big, we tend to burn out. If we think small, we feel like we can do it. We feel like you know, we can stay in the game long enough to see progress. And, so, um, and I think it's just like working out, right? Like if you try to go to a gym and work out two hours a day, seven days a week or five, six days a week, you're going to burn out. But if you start doing 30 minutes of, of, of a good workout each day, you tend to see progress and it doesn't overwhelm you. So don't be overwhelmed in the space of justice and doing good. Just start somewhere and build a foundation. And, you, you know, you never know where that foundation leads. Hmm. So I want to end with this, a portion out of your book. I think this is appropriate. A new world is possible. We have a world to change. We have work to do. We have progress to make. We have real lives who need us to care, love, and give. Here it comes again. Ah! Mm. Not just for a day, a month, or a year, but for the remainder of our days. Sometimes it's difficult to have grace for those who may not be as passionate as you are about a certain cause. People often can't see what you and I can see. They don't believe the world can be better, that hope is rising, that men and women can find deep purpose and meaning when we choose to love and do good. I think um, I can't. I, I was I was speaking at a conference last week called Plywood Presents. Um, a thousand entrepreneurs, and one of the things I told them, and I, and I think this is true for your audience, Angus, is like there is not a more important time, and there are only a few moments in history, like when we're alive. This to me is one of those times. It's just so important for us as an entrepreneurial community, as 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 neighbors, to to realize like we have to find ways to make our world better. It's not an option. Like I, I think of you know just here in Raleigh, there was a mall shooting the other day, um, and and my sister in law and my nephew and nieces were at the mall on lockdown for seven hours. Like how what is going on with that? Like. I'm more scared to go into a mall now than to go to Iraq. I mean, what? There's something is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so that being said, I think just like any entrepreneur community, we either run from the problem or we face it head on. 
And the only way to face the problems we're facing now, the global problems, the, the terrorism, you know, the political chaos is to face it head on. And, and oftentimes this doesn't seem manly enough or important enough, but the word love literally is the foundation that makes our world operate. And when that, when that foundation gets disrupted, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are or how successful you are or how much money you have. Like if, if we don't learn how to neighbor and love each other well, um, all the other things just don't matter. And so how do we as a community, how do your listeners just be committed, starting small and saying, you know what? I'm going to do these one or two things to make the world better and brighter. And it's a calling. You know, look, we're literally, there's a calling for our world to say we have to step up and take this message serious um, because we're needed in this moment more than ever. Mm. Chris Marlowe, your book, Doing Good is Simple. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they go about doing so? You can go to help one now, helponenow.org or doinggoodassimple.com. Um, you can find me on both sites very easily. Um, I'm on social, just at Chris Marlowe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and would love to connect. And our passion is to build relationships, um, and that's our priority. And then we unleash how we can do good together. Um, and so, yeah, man, thanks for having me. Love you. Love your show. Um, I'm super excited to see the world become brighter because of the things you all do. That's awesome, man. Let me uh, just bring us out with this one story, and I think we'll close with this. We had given out some microloans, small sums of money to help local individuals start small businesses. The year before, so we were visiting the recipients to see the progress of their businesses. On the first stop, we walked into a house with a box of chickens in the living room. This family had used a $300 microloan to start a chicken business. The family income had quadrupled in four months because this was a new business opportunity. Ugh. After hearing their story and seeing the progress of their business, we said our goodbyes. We walked out into the street making small talk. I asked the father, how does this make him feel to have his own business? To see his wife so excited to help run the family business and have more money to provide for their family. I was expecting him to reply with something like, our lives have been transformed forever. Instead, in a very calm, smooth sort of way, here's what the father told me. This loan has given us an opportunity, and I am grateful, very grateful. And what I love the most is that every Thursday, I am able to take my son to get an ice cream cone. We've never been able to afford to do that before. In that moment, so much more of what we do made sense to me. We have fancy words and big data. It is all so overwhelming. Sometimes we get lost and we wonder if what we are doing is really working, if what we are doing really does matter. And then a father shares a simple story. In that moment, this dad is like every other dad in the world. He loves his son and wants him to enjoy an ice cream cone from the local market. He is like you and me. Chris Marlowe, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Angus. Still get a simple, and that's what we mean. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Chris, for your time and your passion and the great work that you do. 
And thanks for getting me all choked up time and time again, man. I really appreciate you. So what kind of action can you take from this interview? You can link up with Help One Now. You could support that fine organization for sure. You can also find something to do in your hometown, some place to serve or to give. You can make eye contact with those around you and make them feel like they matter. You could reach out to a colleague, a coworker, or family member and extend an extra grace. Perhaps you'd think twice before responding to a post or argument and maybe stop perpetuating all that negativity in social media. That's my hope for you today, is that you connect with the fact that you matter and that you recognize you have the opportunity to play a part in bringing change to our world. And the best part, it doesn't have to be huge or difficult. Please go and pick up Chris's book and make a choice to do something good. After all, (laughs) doing good is simple. I'd love to hear what you thought about today's show. You can ask me any questions uh, you'd like. Come and find me on Twitter. I'm at Angus Nelson. If you're looking for any of the links and show notes to this episode, I want to uh, get you into our Facebook group. That link is in there too. All of this, show links and more at the show notes. Show links, show show notes. Say that three times fast. AngusNelson.com forward slash 053. I'm your host, Angus Nelson. Go ahead and tell your friends about this show because the greatest compliment you can give is a referral to someone else, either by telling them in person or sharing it on the web. Keep taking your business up by getting up in your business. Live intentionally, love extravagantly, and lead with self-awareness. Be amazing. Thanks for listening to the Up In Your Business podcast with Angus Nelson. Find more at upinyourbusiness.co. Remember, that's .co, not com. <laughs>